Before getting into today's episode, I need to apologize for the little bit of static interruption that comes through in the first uh, six to seven minutes of the podcast. I made the rookie mistake of leaving my cell phone right beside the recording receiver. So as a few messages were coming through, uh, it created interference in the audio. But after the between the seven and eight minute mark uh, of the podcast, there's no more of that. And it's just clear audio. So I just wanted to uh, let everyone know that up front. So you know that sort of issue is not going to be throughout the entire podcast. So I hope you enjoy this week's episode. And I promise to never make that error again. (laughs) Enjoy. Welcome to the Cardio Metabolic Health Podcast, the show which helps listeners drop fat, increase muscle mass, and most importantly, prevent or even reverse lifestyle-driven diseases. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Andrew Appleton, as we dive into the root of obesity, diabetes, neurological disorders, and even many cancers. Yes, these are all preventable diseases driven by various lifestyle choices that you can do something about today. Our podcast aims to take complex health topics and turn them into easily digestible information with a practical viewpoint so you can take meaningful actions right now. So join us as we do our part to reestablish the core value of health back to our community. What was your inspiration for an Alzheimer's podcast? I what, forget. <laughs> well, you you, <laughs> you brought up something uh, in popular culture. I can't remember what actor it was who's like, oh, there's yeah, a video yeah, yeah. about. So you, you didn't do your homework. I didn't. I know that the video's about him learning about his Alzheimer's risk. Well, that's what the, that's the marketing. That's like the trailer side of it. So Chris gotcha. Hemsworth, ever heard that's, of him? That's yeah. who it is. Thor. Thor. <laughs> exactly. Gotcha. Yeah. Basically your, your doppelganger. Yeah. <laughs> Slightly better looking, some might say. Uh, so he, on Disney Plus, there's this six part series called Limitless, uh, which is basically a documentary of his exploration of what it takes to live a longer, healthier life. And I think all of that was essentially stimulated by the fact that he had had an assessment by your friend Peter Atia. Gotcha. And uh, he found out that he was uh, double ABOE4 genetic uh, heritage. So that means that he has an 8 to 10 times increased risk of developing late onset Alzheimer's disease. Among other things. Among other, th- yeah, exactly, vascular disease and, and so on. So, um, yeah, they just sort of w- went on this <laughs> journey. And, of course, it's like this really extreme, uh, fantastical sort of thing. But uh, it, you know what? It's actually it's worth watching. Yeah. It's pretty light on the science. Um, As it probably it's, should be it's, if pretty, it's just for general consumption. I think it's pretty good on the, uh, on the entertainment side of things because they put them through these challenges, which are just like – totally outrageous and have nothing to do with, right. with living longer uh like they do uh like a navy seal drown proofing mm. <laughs> to when get they a, tie your arms and legs up yeah <laughs> yeah they ba- bind your hands behind your back and I, like i get sweaty palms just thinking about it but uh, yeah. and then they just throw you in the pool and you gotta survive <laughs> yeah uh but that's just you know to learn how to get used to stress if that's right <laughs> like, okay sure whatever <laughs> 
Um, but it's yeah, I think it's it's pretty well done. It's certainly worthwhile watching for people. I think for the casual viewer looking at it, it's probably going to create more questions than than to answer your questions. Um, but I think it's I think we're at a point where there's a lot more awareness of this sort of thing. People are more interested in health and longevity in general, uh, which uh, which is great. And if they have questions and they need to go talk to somebody, then they should do that. I just wish there were more more of us on the healthcare provider side that were equally as tuned in. Yeah, I can't remember what I was actually just thinking about this this morning while I was driving in and I don't think the train of thought necessarily came from anywhere just arrived in my head while I was Whoa. driving in silence. Imagine as, that. Eh? As Where thoughts, do thoughts come from? <laughs> as thoughts <Yeah>. sometimes <laughs> do. Uh, but I was thinking I feel like the quality of life of the average human being was much better when we lived during a time, let's say even, you know, 60, 70, 100 years ago, where you just got sick and died one day. And there was no, like, path to figuring out, like, what may come or what what disease you were en route to, to, to yeah, succumbing I, I, to rather than just I, I, living your life having no idea and probably less care about what is going to happen to you when, and then one day you just deteriorate <laughs> and that's the end. Well, I'd, I'd certainly rather live now than then. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think we're, we're kind of grappling with the problem that's been created by solving a lot of other problems. So people live longer now than they ever have before because of these amazing advances in in medicine and science. And now we're sort of stuck with, okay, so now that people are living longer, but not necessarily better, they have a lot of diseases and you know, disabilities and that the quality of those extra you know, 20 years that people are getting compared to 100 years ago uh, may not be all that great. And so now I think the, the focus is shifting more on the health span side of things where it's like, how do we make those actually good quality years that are worth living as opposed to, you know, you retire and then get sick and die? What are the advances in medicine that you think are actually high impact? Because I think about things like, yes, antibiotics. Antibiotics have, have, and vaccines a lot. are probably two of the major ones. And aside from that, what else? Because there's all these different departments of medical expertise. And when you look at all the different specialists and all the different departments and all the different types of medicine that gets practiced, and you look at it closely, in my view, it doesn't look like medicine has done all that much as far as advancing people's health compared to like agricultural production so that people aren't starving several months out of the year or starving to death or things yep. like uh, yeah. sanitation yeah, exactly. and, and, like, like and pu sewer systems and water things. treatment. Like to me, it seems like those are the things that have led to longer life. Not so much medicine. I don't, I think, uh, I think people give medicine a little bit too much credit for the, uh, for the health span and lifespan of, of yeah, human beings. Outside of, of antibiotics, the ability to treat infectious disease and prevent infectious disease for sure is probably the, the biggest return on investment of, of any of those things. I think from a, the combination of treatments that are used for cardiovascular disease now definitely add 
years to people's lives that would have died before uh, from you know just heart failure or massive heart attacks like surgeries stents things like that yeah yeah exactly gotcha yeah and I'm I'm willing to bet statins have added you know a a large number of person years it's a very controversial thing to say yeah (laughs) depending on who you ask oh no (laughs) (laughs) depending on who you ask I mean it probably also depends on the the very specific situation that a person is into right like the more dire your straits probably the more response you're going to get with less risk from something like a statin yeah. Like most drugs. Well, that's it. Because when, when we look at studies and, the and you know, Alzheimer's, which we're going to talk about, studies are, are a good example of if you try a treatment in a population that doesn't have advanced disease, you're far less likely to show any benefit whatsoever. And so those populations don't actually get studied. So we <laughs> and but then if somebody's too far gone, you know, you, you pick the, the too advanced disease state and then your treatment fails, then you're really back to ground zero. And so you've, you've got to find that sweet spot. So when do I actually intervene is one of the toughest questions to answer. I'm going to further derail this Alzheimer's podcast. <laughs> I love it. Because I also yeah, have to I have ask, a story for you. Yeah. I also have to ask, not because uh, and this isn't me pushing back on your statement, but it's more just curiosity. Why do you think it's better to live now than it would be 50, 100 years ago? Oh, I think uh, just the the number of, of things that people have access to and are able to experience, um, the availability of just all of human knowledge and the ability to be educated is you know vastly greater than it ever has been at any point, and that's largely because of, of technology. Um, yes, there's a ton of downsides of, of technology, absolutely. Um, but I just think in terms of you know security and, and safety and just the l- luxury of being able to explore the things that you want to, there's no better time than, than right now. Um, but at the same time, that has to be balanced with the, the acceptance that we are still you know, animals at heart and we need to be in nature and en- enjoy the simple things and spend more time doing that. So, yeah, it's, it's a balance of the two. But certainly, I think, as far as a living in society, then this is a better time than before. Yeah, because people talk about that all the time. And there's been many uh, recent books written on, uh, you know, how great it is to be alive now. Yeah. But I, when, I, <laughs> when I think about this sort of thing, I always come to the point of all the stuff we highlight when we talk about how life is so great now compared to any other yeah. you know time in our history it's always comfort related it's always comfort and safety related it's like the things that feel good but don't really matter is what we're highlighting while the things that really do matter but are less stimulating are the things that that we're not uh we're not calculating for properly like community like mental health disorders, uh, like uh, productivity uh, and sense of purpose and family and all these sorts of things that are now just like we don't even think about those things anymore. And uh, when you look at what's happening today with mental health of people of all ages, but now especially in young people, you know, what, what is it that people actually want out of life? I would assume it's to be uh, like content, satisfied, meaning purpose, right. drive, like feel like when you wake up, you know what you're doing and why and who you're doing it for and feeling supported with the people around you. I feel like 
the vast majority of the population does not have any of that, but they have TV and they have medicine and they have dentistry and they have like, it's not that those, I'm not trying to minimize those things, but if it's an either or scenario, sure, all of these uh, technological growths and comforts and safeties that, that, that we've allotted ourselves over the centuries. I think it comes, it comes down to a bit of, a a bit of awareness. So if, I mean, certainly you can plug in like Wally style and (laughs) just, you know, veg out and get fat and be entertained and not have to think about, the meaning of life or why you're here or whether or not you're doing something good for society. Uh, you can do that. That's fine. It but, isn't that but most that's, people though. Well, my concern is that is most people, <laughs> but because of everything that is built into society, if you have the awareness that life is this amazing, amazing gift that you get to experience for such a relatively short time, there are so many things available at your fingertips that you can do and explore and experience to really enhance your well-being and just you know, being able to do that. Like that's that is what it's all about. And there's no better time than now to do that. So that's that's my personal lens that I I view it through because I'm very driven by curiosity and the desire to learn and the desire to figure out how I can help other people have the freedom to do the things that they want to do. Um, so I feel like I have a reasonable amount of meaning and my ability to pursue that is facilitated by everything that we have now. Yeah. And I, and I don't pretend to, to have an answer to that philosophical question. And as a parent, I think (laughs) your assessment of, of the tools you have around you is much different. Because, like, if my kids get sick, they're going to be okay. My kid gets an infection, they're going to be fine. Yeah. when when my wife gave birth to our children, I wasn't sitting there thinking, "Is this one going to live or not?" Right? right? Or which is, is she going to live? <laughs> yeah, precisely. Which yeah. is the reality of yeah. you know uh, certain periods, uh, you know certain past here uh, periods in uh, human history, which isn't the case now. So, like for me as a parent, it's pretty clear that things are better now when I think about those things. But more about like younger people, you know, uh, people without children, uh, where that sort of issue is not something that's even on the radar. And the most important thing to them is, do I have friends? Do I have a significant other? Uh, Do I have somewhere to go in life? Do I have a purpose that I'm building on? Do I have a direction? I feel like uh, a lot of that is missing today. And it's it's getting worse rapidly. Like it's quickly devolving into a situation where... uh, and there's a I huge void the of, of leadership and, and policymakers who are actually interested in promoting that, just yes. the core essence of what it means to be a human being. Yeah. Yeah. Anyhow. Any, yeah. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> on, on to <laughs> Alzheimer's. Just, just ended there. Um, I just have one, one quick. Um, I can't help myself. One quick proud dad story for you. <laughs> yeah. who, who are you? Yeah, as you as a, your you have best, a best dad award. Your best dad award <laughs> stares at me from the wall. Uh, I think I do have a best dad award actually. Of course, you yeah. Do. <laughs> um, so we were at the at the dinner table the other night, and you know we we're sort of j- joking with the kids how you know mom and dad like to be really healthy because our goal is to live so long that we can annoy you for as long as possible <laughs> into adulthood so like right. when you're an adults and you have your own kids we can be oh what's the matter are you busy are you are you tired is this difficult 
uh, and then my, my daughter launches into this impression of me about what is, you know, my health advice. <laughs> and so she, she goes, you want to be healthy? She goes, go to CrossFit. Eat meat. Get some sleep. <laughs> and don't bring yeah. bottles of wines to people's oh houses when you it visit. Was, it was it was great. It was one of those. I was like, oh, you are listening. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. It is funny. Kids, kids, I have, for better or for worse, kids are the reflection. Yeah. Uh, and I, I learned that lesson both ways. Sometimes I have those proud moments and sometimes my kids will say or do something. I go, well, I got to stop. I got to stop <laughs> yeah. doing and saying those Oops. things around the kids. <laughs> yeah. Anyhow, right. Alzheimer's. Alzheimer's. Yeah. Okay. What do you want to know about it? Well, this oh. was, uh, you're supposed to be leading this podcast. Oh, shoot. Okay. I should be more prepared then. <laughs> uh, I guess to, to set the scene, so Alzheimer's disease is the most common form of dementia. Uh, and it's one of those things that people hear about and you go, oh, man, like I, that's not something that I want to happen to me. And, you know, I think many of us have personally been... Uh, been touched by Alzheimer's disease in our families, or we know, you know, either friends who've had parents or older relatives who've suffered from some form of dementia. Uh, and, you know, 60% of the time, that's going to be Alzheimer's. And then vascular dementia is the, the next most common version, and often they overlap as well. Um, so it's, it's important to talk about within our, our context of cardiometabolic health because, you know, guess what? It's metabolic disease, which is one of the major risk factors that leads to the development of, of Alzheimer's. So I thought it'd be worthwhile uh, as one of those things, as a motivator to be as healthy as possible when you're, you know, younger and in middle age to prevent the onset of dementia as and as we learn more and more about it um, then you know it's i think it's a good thing to think about and plan and add to your your motivation yeah do you think alzheimer's is but one of those diseases like prostate cancer where it's just a matter of people are living so much longer that it's the one that you know you live long enough this is something that just human beings are susceptible to suffering from uh, not necessarily. So the in terms of, of prevalence, it's it's mainly a disease of old age. So onset is typically after 65. And every five years after the age of 65, your risk of developing Alzheimer's doubles. So you know when somebody says, well, what is my lifetime risk? That's actually a really difficult question to answer because it depends on how old you are when you ask the question. Right. So at age 65, your lifetime risk is probably in the you know five to eight percent range, and then every five years that doubles. So you know take that out to age 80, 85, then your risk for sure within the next five is pretty high. Yeah. Uh, but we do know that there are people who live to 100 who are perfectly cognitively intact, and they're, those you know, people have been the basis of a lot of studies to try to figure out why is that, uh, you know, what makes them, you know, they probably sort of three packs of cigarettes <laughs> per exactly, day. Yeah. Why are they so resilient? <laughs> you know, this, the super ager sort of thing. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's interesting to look at those populations. So it's, it's not necessarily the fate of, of everybody. Um, but one thing that anybody listening can do is just, you know, just reflect on your family history. If you had a grandparent, uh, or if you have a parent who has cognitive impairment or a diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease, then guess what? You are at risk of developing that too because there is a strong genetic component to it. Yeah. Uh, do you know anything about uh, the variance in Alzheimer's risk around various parts of the world? Like are there certain cultures where it's much less prevalent? Is it a uh, disease of, of North America? Do you know any of that data? 
It's, I mean, it's pretty much a worldwide phenomenon. Uh, there are definitely environmental factors that increase your risk, but most of those environmental factors are to do with socioeconomic status. Uh, and so I think if you look at the at developing nations, it's hard to say because the life expectancy is actually lower. So people actually probably don't live long enough to know whether or not um, their environment is an increased risk. Whereas if we look at lower socioeconomic groups in developed nations, then there's absolutely an increased risk. Uh, yeah. What do you attribute that to? Uh, well, it's multivariable. So, so low SES is going to be associated with increased prevalence of obesity and heart disease and diabetes and poor diets and you know worse social circumstances and all the rest of it. So, how you pull that apart is is very challenging to know. Is there is there one specific thing that's actually contributing to that risk? All right. I feel like we've talked about this on a on a previous podcast. But I've read lots about the theory, the plausible theory, that Alzheimer's is a matter of inability to properly use glucose. Uh, and some people calling diseases like Alzheimer's type 3 diabetes. Uh, do you have any thoughts on that? So there, I mean, there's, there's multiple driving factors. Uh, so insulin resistance and glucose metabolism is definitely one of the factors which has been strongly associated with the development of it. And there's a lot of different mechanistic pathways that are you know, proposed to be responsible for that. Uh, but it's not only that. So inflammation itself is also strongly correlated. And those two things overlap in the Venn diagram. And then oxidative stress uh, is another factor, which, you know, again, sort of lives in that in that same realm. So all of these things work together at a biochemical level to increase your risk for sure. So I'm like type 2 diabetes itself is uh, definitely an independent risk factor. Because I know that there's some uh, small studies suggesting that things like the ketogenic diet can be therapeutic right. uh, when people are, are learning. Uh, I don't know if it's only in early stage Alzheimer's or if it includes uh, late onset. Um, but when someone starts having symptoms and gets that diagnosis, that a ketogenic diet does seem to be therapeutic and slow the speed at which someone digresses into, you know, a yeah. full-on state of Alzheimer's. Yeah, I don't think the, the data sets are large enough to know if that's, if that's going to be a generalizable intervention. Um, the, the diet with the best evidence for, for dementia is the Mediterranean diet. Uh, and we've covered that before, so, you know, the components definitely will have a, a reduced consumption of processed and refined carbohydrates and it's always it's always really challenging when you see a study with a Mediterranean diet you really have to dive into the components of it because it does vary study to study um, so for example a recent one that I was looking at actually had a very carbohydrate restricted aspect to it so like less than 20 grams per day of carbohydrate which is essentially a ketogenic diet yeah so yeah it's 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 challenging to know but for sure when it comes i mean the basis of of the keto diet as a therapeutic intervention was for neurological disease it was for childhood epilepsy and there have now been lots of lots of data to suggest that using it as an intervention for mental health disease 
um, and and dementia for sure could could be beneficial. Uh, but there are lots of other you know tools in in the toolkit which could be used for sure. There's some um, I, I haven't read too much about this, so I don't have. Uh, I don't have deep in insights here, but is there not a current controversy over the uh, most popular theory of the yeah. amyloid plaque and its That's relation right. to Alzheimer's? Yeah, so if we take a step back and say, well, what is Alzheimer's disease? Uh, so it's it's a dementia, it's cognitive impairment, which, you know, tip the hallmark of Alzheimer's is that it's, it's a slowly progressive uh, cognitively impairing illness, which basically has to have uh, a memory component to it. So it's anterograde, which means that the ability to form new memories uh, and to have long-term recall uh, in cognitive tasks is basically quite impaired. And then that can progress to other forms of impairment, so executive function, problem-solving abilities, uh, attention, yeah, and then can you know sort of devolve into behavioral, uh, you know, disinhibition and and, and so on. Um, so it's it's multifactorial, but it's the memory component, and it's more so than just like the memory lapses, which everybody associates with you know being sleep deprived or or of old age, where like you misplaced your keys or whatever, and then you found them later. Yeah. It's more so, you know, it's it's actually usually family members uh, or people who are who are living with the person who recognize it first because there's actually generally a lack of insight from the individual that this is happening uh, so people will go yeah like, there's a lot of repetitive tasks going on um, you know they they went out and they got like they went to the grocery store and they got lost they couldn't figure out how to come back so those those things are major red flags uh, for somebody to go and and get an assessment so if <laughs> if you're listening and you have uh, an older relative in their 60s plus and some of these things are happening then you need to get that person in to to have a proper cognitive assessment completed um, in terms of what causes Alzheimer's so the prevailing notion for a long long time has been the amyloid uh, plaque hypothesis so amyloid beta are these small peptides that essentially accumulate in the uh, in the brain around your neurons and you know clog up proper function so i you know, don't need to get into it more <laughs> more than that uh, but it's essentially just you you have these deposits and they make your your signals not function as well and so that's been that's been the the notion for more than 20 years for sure uh, but only recently, within the past year or so, there was uh, actually a huge uh, investigation completed. And it turns out that there was a ton of fraudulent data, which was published uh, by the, the people who initially proposed that hypothesis. So they fudged a bunch of their, uh, their images, like their neuroimaging studies that they used and, and published. Uh, so when we w when people went back and actually looked at those things, uh, it turned out that they were like reusing the same images. It had clearly been you know something was changed in when they ran their proteins on their gels. Uh, so you know, interesting. Plus the fact that the monoclonal antibody therapies that target amyloid and try to clear it out, you know, none of them have really been all that successful. 
And there was actually a, a major study in the New England Journal published just last week on lecanemab, which is the most uh, uh, the most recent one studied, uh, which is published as a positive trial for slowing the progression of cognitive decline. But once you, you get into it and read it, it's very underwhelming. I thought there was some... Uh there was also some connection between uh, drug manufacturers and this uh, false evidence in one way or another. Oh. Do you know anything about that? I don't. I don't know anything about that. Um, yeah, I'm not I, sure. I can't remember if I feel like I I need a, an assistant here to look things up for me. But I <laughs> I thought when I was initially reading about this uh, a drug manufacturer. Uh, who who had approved medication for uh, amyloid plaque knew something about how these uh, studies were run and knew something about <laughs> the uh, the false outcomes uh, and continued to produce the drug, of course, and sell it to people. Yeah. Hopefully that's accurate. I hope I'm not speaking out of turn there. But I remember that being part of the story as well. So what – in a broader sense, what does that say about – the fragility of research based around diseases that gets turned into medical advice when something that has been the leading theory of disease for this long, we just find out now was absolutely yeah, bullshit. I mean, well, it's, it's, it sucks. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, it's at, at least the science will always continue to move closer to the truth and you know the fact that we have uncovered this and we know it is is good it's a positive step uh it's unfortunate that literally billions of dollars and decades worth of people's time and energy have probably been all for naught um and you know the the FDA approved one of these monoclonal antibodies last year uh and we're you know probably going to waste millions of dollars on treatments that don't actually change the nature of people's lives so that's really troubling um but now hopefully we're at a point where we kind of go back and go and say all right maybe we need to rethink the direction here and start funding other avenues of of treatment and you know and emerging therapies which may be more beneficial down the road but that's uh, that's that time horizon is long yeah i don't want to get all controversial here but uh <laughs> you never do <laughs> yeah. i don't know that you can say with certainty that science is always going to move closer to the truth when the people who are involved in determining what the best science is are financially incentivized to do things the way they are right now. Like, for instance, if a drug company runs a trial that the FDA is involved in, like the FDA doesn't have any money. They're not actually running the trials. They're not paying for the trials. They're not conducting the trials. They're just overseeing the data that's given to them by these companies. Right. Uh, and without the money from these companies, the FDA itself does not exist as an institution that functions. So until those sorts of relationships change, how can how can anyone be confident that the science is as strong as it could be or that it's even it's even something to be trusted with these sorts of disincentivized yeah. incestuous relationships that when, are involved when you look at it at the pharmaceutical level then it's an, it's impossible to sort through all of the conflicts of interest yeah but there are 
thousands and thousands of very altruistic, well-meaning scientists at the basic science level working at publicly funded institutions you know, all over North America and the world who want nothing more than to discover the truth and get closer to the truth. And, you know, they are much more removed from those sorts of incentives uh, than drug manufacturers and anybody who's actually doing clinical trials type research. So that's what gives me hope because, you know, I, I, I know a lot of scientists. Uh, you know, my brother is a scientist. Uh, and they, they truly are driven by trying to figure out what's real and what's not real. Like that's, that's what gets them going. Yeah. <laughs> so, I, you know, I'm, I'm hopeful that we will continue to move in the right direction. It's just unfortunate that these things happen. Yeah, I'm sure there's a non-trivial amount, trivial amount of people who do this work, who do it for yeah. the right reasons yeah. and oh, yeah. are ethical and motivated. But unfortunately, that doesn't, that doesn't appear to be most human beings in those positions because human beings have ego. And yeah. it's 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 almost impossible to separate that from the scientific process, even from the researchers, right? Where like if you can if you can put out one outcome that supports the hypothesis, that's gonna get your name on something, put you at the top of the headlines, and all you have to do is fudge sure. this little thing. Or uh, we see this all the time, just not including certain information in the outcomes yeah. of these and, studies. And your your progress through the promotional system as an academic is very much based on. Uh, on productivity that you can show in terms of how much have you published, how high impact is it? Yes, uh, which creates the the wrong incentive for doing good quality work that needs to get done. Yeah, yeah, for which sure. I, that that's what I mean. Like until those mm-hmm. sorts of incentive structures get changed, which how is that ever going to happen? Because yeah. this money's got to come from somewhere, and the people with the money are the people who make the drugs <laughs> and fund and fund the research. Yeah, right. Like when people say like. Well, why aren't uh, why are we doing this kind of research, or how come this doesn't get funded? It's because if there's not if there's not a lot of profit potentially at the end of where this research goes, who are who do you think these people are who are going to be funding, yeah. putting millions of dollars into all these studies that would be very helpful, but aren't going to result in a drug that can profit multi billion dollars? Yeah. Well, keep buying your lotto tickets. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So back back to uh, back yeah. to Alzheimer's. So it's well, I think you know it's important to recognize once you have it, it's not great. So the the average life expectancy is less than ten years once you've had the diagnosis established and how is it that people die from alzheimer's uh, so they i mean they they just progressively have a neurological decline and what is and the actual like end state what is it that actually kills somebody when they have alzheimer's the end so end stage dementia typically looks like uh, a person who is sort of wasting away physically because they're no longer interested or capable of feeding themselves um, they're you know basically completely closed off to the external world. Uh, they don't know who anyone is. They just sort of exist, uh, and they often you know get to the point where they have they get so frail that they have falls or they have acute delirium, which results in injury and hospitalization. Uh, often, for the population that I see in in acute care in hospital. Now, they have aspiration episodes, so they end up you know, inhaling their secretions, and that causes pneumonia, and then they'll succumb to an infection. 
uh, or something like that. So it's it's you know it's it's not pretty. So it's, it's much different than. Uh, like a cardiovascular event where there's this thing that happens that's very related to the disease and you die from it, whereas Alzheimer's just puts somebody into a state where they're vulnerable to now all these new ways of dying uh, because of their inability just to function in the world. Yeah, so complete dependence just to keep their physical body going day to day. Gotcha. Yeah. So, what do people do about it? Because you talk about once you have Alzheimer's, once you have it, so the, it, there's no there's no good treatments. Right. <laughs> Just like full stop. There's you know these experimental therapies, but and now there's there's even more evidence emerging that there's you know potential significant adverse consequences of those antibodies. So I'm just gonna shelve those for now. None of them are approved in Canada. So. <laughs> You know, if you're listening to this and you're in Canada, it doesn't matter anyway, <laughs> unless you you know want to go uh, to Mexico. <laughs> well, that or or be involved in a clinical trial. Right. Then certainly those options are available. Um, so really, the play here is prevention. So what are the things that you can do to prevent this from happening, or at least delay its onset as long as possible? So that that's where I want people to focus, and to add fuel to the fire, you have to understand that this is a disease that takes decades to develop. So there is a very long subclinical phase of 20, 30 years of accumulating badness going on that eventually turn into actual cognitive impairment. Well, let me ask you a question. Is it a case of someone who's going to get it is going to get it if they live long enough, but they can kick that can down the line significantly with prevention? Like, can you actually, like, let's say someone's going to live to 100. Yeah. If they're genetically susceptible to Alzheimer's, are they, can they actually prevent it from ever, for, from ever succumbing to the disease? Or is it just a matter of, are you going to get it at 70 or are you going to get it at 90? Well, let's separate out the, you know, the autosomal dominant genetically inherited mutations. So those are the early onset Alzheimer's cases. So if if you have someone in your family who's developed Alzheimer's like less than age 60, then that's early onset and that's more likely to be an autosomally autosomal dominant mutation, which means that if you got it, you're going to get it. Right. So for those people I think you can probably delay onset, but it is likely inevitable that it's going to happen. Right. Whereas if you have more of a you know multivariable sort of pleiotropic genetic inheritance from people who've had late onset Alzheimer's, then there's a lot of different genes at play, and I don't think it's inevitable that that's your fate. Okay. Continue. Yeah. So yeah. So the question is, what what do we do about it? And the you know, the important thing to recognize here is like your 30s, 40s and 50s, those are the decades when you need to be thinking about prevention mode. Because, I mean, I would assume that most people want to have a good <laughs> retirement. Like you go through your working years, you stop working, you have some more time to enjoy yourself. You don't want to become demented. <laughs> right. Um, although maybe you could do the same thing over and over again and still get a kick out of it. I don't know. But <laughs> perhaps. I've always, I've, I've thought about that quite a bit of like, you know, people who are in that state, I think it's impossible to know what the quality of their life is actually That's like. That's true. Yeah. When, when they're like, when they can function in other ways, yeah. like when they can physically move around the world and they just have these uh, memory hiccups where, you know, they occasionally don't remember who a loved one is. 
but they can go around and function in the world. It's like who, because it's the ethical question of, uh, we'll get into that. So, I was going to get into all so this the main people, controversy. The people around the individual are far more distressed typically this is what than I would the think. individual. It's like it's hard to watch somebody become progressively more cognitively impaired and not be distressed by what you're seeing because your concept of that person's identity is what pre-existed that state. Yes. And so you're just comparing what you're seeing now to then. When the person who has it still has insight and they know that their brain is failing them, that can be really, really frustrating and miserable to go through. I can imagine. Once they get to the point where they lose that insight, then, yeah, I'm not so sure. I, I, I wonder, actually, because we know that you know self-identification is... You know, often fraught with a lot of inner conflict so you know it's sort of like the 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 buddhism no self thing right so once you lose that concept of yourself like you no longer have that identity or even anyone around you maybe they're just in a state of bliss i i I don't know it's hard to say but at the same time there's you know we see what's manifested so often patients will become very agitated and and have uh you know delirious episodes and whatnot which are clearly they're distressed yes yeah. yeah. Okay. Continue on. <laughs> prevention. So prevention. Yeah. So there's there's a number of things um, that I think you can do. I think probably first and foremost thing to focus on is sleep quality. Uh, so during sleep is the time when your brain clears out the garbage that accumulates during the day, uh, including amyloid peptides. So getting adequate amount of good quality sleep for you know, a duration of seven to eight hours as often as you possibly can will definitely pay dividends down the road. And like, like it can't really be underscored enough because people often tell me like, "Ah, I'm doing all the right things. But then when you start asking specific questions about their sleep hygiene practices, uh, it's actually very rare that somebody is doing all that they can to have the best quality sleep possible. Yeah, I can imagine nobody is doing all that they can to have the best quality sleep possible because there are sacrifices involved in taking care of yourself, which is why most people don't do most things that they could or should, (laughs) whether it's, you know, eating a certain way, exercising, sleeping properly. It's, you know, getting taking this thing back full circle. The, The comforts that we have access to often take precedent over what we are going to want for ourselves in the future, but yeah. can't. It's very hard for a human being to motivate themselves to take action now. That is going to serve them in yeah. the future. So this is ta- a well understood so problem. So taking, you know, you're well served to take the long view, or at least think about your your future self 40, 50 years from now, and go, what am I doing for that person? Because I, I, you know, that that person is is actually important to me, though that they don't exist yet. But I'm going to be them. So I want to be the most functional, high quality person that I can be. Again, so I can annoy my kids and uh, play with my grandkids. Right. <laughs> um, it, so yeah, there's there's a great framework here from a review article that I pulled that actually goes over a lot of the tenets of the things that that we can do. So again, sleep is is a super important part of it. But you know, a, a conversation on sleep is like a whole episode in and of itself um but two of the other things that often come up are socialization so the importance of actually having and maintaining and participating in good quality 
relationships with people that you care about, again, is really, really important. And again, one of those things that quickly goes by the wayside when you're busy in middle age with your career, you've got kids, you're just sort of stuck in that day-to-day grind of, you know, I just <laughs> just get through the day and do my parenting and then I collapse exhausted at night, not having done anything for myself and certainly not having had a chance to get together with my friends and do something just for pure enjoyment or have a date night with my wife and just, you know, bond and experience love, right? Yeah. So it's, it's super important to think about that, maintaining that network of, you know, not social media friends because those aren't actual friends. Uh, we want you know people face to face, good conversation, just interacting, even just day to day talking to people on the street uh, has also been associated with uh, with potential benefits in cognitive health. So these are scientifically quantified yep. uh, interventions you're talking about. There, there yeah. are there are data. I see my friends exist. like twice a year. Yeah, well, exactly, right? Because <laughs> you're you're that you're that guy, right? So yeah. you're, you're late thirties, got the job, got the kids, all the stuff, and it's like, how the hell am I supposed to get away? Yeah, whenever yeah. like we have plans, uh, the closer it gets to the plans, you're the less like, oh, I no. want to go. I'm like, this <laughs> yeah. is just like something that <laughs> if I could snack my fingers and make this social occasion go away, I would, and I just. Sit down for half an hour and then go to bed. Yeah, yeah. I was I, actually I was reading reading an article yesterday and they had the the quote of when when you're young, you sneak out of bed to go to parties, and when you're older, you sneak out of parties to go to bed. Precisely. Yeah, that's <laughs> definitely where I'm at. I've been there yeah. for the last decade, probably. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Okay, so that's the social in- engagement uh, component, and then and the sense of purpose that you're you we were talking about off the top, right, is also super important. Like you need to have meaning in your life. You need to be working on something, uh, a self chosen challenge that's that's difficult, that's cognitively stimulating. Like these these are good projects to have on the go. Yeah, I wonder what the, the, I'm sure there's not accurate statistics but i would think there'd be some sort of relation between alzheimer's and other sort of degenerative diseases and the industrial era where the whole goal was work a job you hate until you're 60 to 65 retire and then do nothing for the last you know 15 to 20 years of your life because you see all these uh retirees now and all the like the baby boomer generation like our parents generation and this isn't you know everyone across the board but the majority is like now's my time to sit around and do nothing for my last 20 years and i would think that has to accelerate all of these kinds of terrible thing to aspire to uh but yeah i I fully agree with you i mean my so my my mom's a good example of not doing that so she taught in elementary school for 34 years you know, did the the whole thing, the whole career, retired in her later 50s. And that lasted for less than two years before she went, okay, I need to do something else. And she went to uh, college and did a diploma program in medical administration. And now she's been working for the last you know decade doing that. That's great. And it gives her purpose. It gives her a schedule, and it keeps her engaged. I mean, it's that's great. So she and she's and she chose to do it. Yeah. So there, you, you couldn't couldn't be better than that. But I I don't know how people can choose to just 
I'm going to do this and then I'm going to go to Florida and sit on the beach for, you know, the winter and then come back. I guess they have shuffleboard and social activities and communities down there. So maybe that's just as good. But maybe. I don't, know. I don't know. Yeah. Doesn't appeal to you? Not really. No. No. <laughs> no. I can't imagine a day. Like, I'm sure there's a time in life where you're just so, like, old and run down and dysfunctional that it's yeah. just it's the beginning of the end. Right. Yeah. But until that point, I, I can't. I can't imagine myself not waking up with stuff to do and get done. And like, I, yeah, I can't imagine life without an agenda of right. I, there's things I have to take care of today. Yeah. You know, I need to fix that doorknob or whatever. Yeah, like you're the things you need to learn, the people you need to talk to. There's like one leaf in the yard. To I need yourself. to fire up the leaf blower, all that yeah. sort of stuff, whatever it is, just like a consistent, consistent daily tasks where you tick those box when they're done you exhale and then yeah. you can do your relaxing i i can't imagine ever not earning something yeah. you know what i mean like even I, if it's a small win right things like can't be satisfying yeah. if you didn't have to get something done that wasn't the most fun thing to do to get the carrot <laughs> Do you know? Yeah. It's, uh, I don't know. I maybe. hear you. I hear you. It's just how I am. Okay. So obviously we weren't going to get through this without talking about <laughs> diet and exercise. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I already mentioned the the Mediterranean oh. diet. So, you know, tons and tons of, of data on the Mediterranean diet for cardiovascular disease uh, and, and neurological disease. So, uh, and it's reducing the risk of cancers, among other things. So, I mean, if, if there is a dietary pattern with the best data to look at and sort of try to emulate and that would absolutely be the one um but i i don't, I don't necessarily want to get into the weeds on on that and yeah. then just you know active daily exercise so even if that's just going for a brisk walk every day having started at zero then that's great uh obviously getting to the point where you're including some resistance training which is going to improve your insulin sensitivity because of that the whole insulin resistance aspect of things um so you know this is something that needs to be incorporated into just the daily life when they look at the blue zones you know the people who live to four thousand years old with you know free of cognitive impairment um, they engage in regular daily physical activity and it's not necessarily in a gym setting. It's just, they're just active people who walk a lot and, and do things and, you know, work in their own gardens and everything else. And they're engaged socially. Yeah. They're occupied. Yeah. Sudoku's not on there. Sudo <laughs> yeah. Word searches. <laughs> Anything along those lines. That's my dad's, uh, prevention strategy. I, yeah. Sudoku. So th there's been lots of studies on, like a cognitive training, so brain training, so like the apps and, and different things where it's like problem-solving games and Sudokus would be one, crosswords, that sort of thing. Um, I think there there is some some data to suggest that that's beneficial. It's certainly not harmful, and it's you know another, again, one of those things that gives you a sense of accomplishment when you, you do it and you achieve yeah. the, the puzzle, so that's, that's great. Yeah. I can't see why not. I don't think it's, you know, the... Probably you're you're improving your diet and exercise and social engagement and sleeping well. I would say are probably far more uh, potent in terms of their therapeutic potential. Is it frustrating for you that yes. <laughs> I, I feel like that's probably the answer that every disease you deal with comes down type to type two diabetes, cardiovascular <laughs> disease, uh, obesity, neurological disorders. The advice is the same. 
like the strategy, the prevention, the intervention, the reversal when it's when it's possible. It's all the same. That's why we're having these conversations. Because yeah, so I, yes, it's I don't feel like there's going to be any new breakthroughs of what is causing or what will prevent or potentially reverse any of these issues. So some days you must sit there and feel like if I can't get the majority of the population that I deal with on board with these things, like what am I doing? Like what am I doing here? What are we doing here? Are, are you questioning my <laughs> career choice? <laughs> I'm questioning. Yeah. Yeah, I am. I suppose. <laughs> or the, I, I'm not your career choice, but the, it's like when people talk about, talk about researchers, they're like, oh, you'll work five years on this thing and it might not be your hypothesis and might not come true and what you learn might be nothing at all and you find out it's a giant waste of time and then you move on to the next thing. And I think like, why? Right. Why just just do something else that, yeah. that's that has a little bit more gratification. Yeah. I was thinking about bodybuilding, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you have yeah. the frame or the genetics yeah. for it. Thank you very much. Yeah. <laughs> Although I, I suppose they I do agree. have it like was, men's uh, bikini category or something <laughs> like that. Uh, banana hammock category. Is <laughs> yeah. That, yeah. Um, yeah. It's frustrating, man. Absolutely. Um, it's it, I find I repeat myself a lot because the advice and, isn't the thing. And it's and it's funny that despite the number of times I have the same conversation with people, with patients, it's always really challenging to thread the needle on what that person needs to do or change. But the most challenging thing is just it's the motivation aspect of it. And you know, I, you sort of you get to the point where you're like, okay, so. Yeah, we could have a conversation about all of the different things that I think you should do, but why don't you tell me what you're willing to do? Like, is like what I've laid out for you in terms of all of the things that are wrong. <laughs> you know, is any of that motivating to you? Like, are are you actually going to change? Do you want to change? Uh, and people are usually pretty honest, and you know, a lot of the time they'll kind of go, "No, <laughs> okay, well." Well, here you go. So we'll we'll be here when the wheels totally fall off and we're in disease treatment mode, right? So prevention mode is a lot more challenging for people to take up the gauntlet. Um, it seems that the whole structure and preferred way of it now is, well, let's just wait until the wheels completely fall off and then I'll do the prescriptions. I get so frustrated with the current state of you know, the spike in influenza and respiratory viruses its causing these backlogs in hospitals and then people jumping on the internet saying, bring back masks. And I'm sitting and thinking to myself, 75% of the population is overweight. Over one third of the Canadian population is now obese, clinically obese. That's the problem. It's not that there's not enough masking happening in public spaces. Yeah. It's not even a funding issue in hospitals when it comes down to it. It's that the vast majority of the population will not take steps to take care of themselves to prevent them from ending up in the hospital in the first place. It also means they'll never be out of work. <laughs> that, this, this is true. <laughs> and that's what some cynics would say. They would say, you know, 
doctors don't actually well, want the, people to get healthy because if people got healthy, they wouldn't have a business model. It's like, no, they're getting that's paid. That's true. This whole regardless. podcast is really it's just a, an elaborate cover-up. Yeah. Um, maybe in a pri- in a purely private system, there might the, be more more teeth there. The positive aspect of, of the interactions that I have is – you know, I, I sort of have the mindset that the only thing you can do is focus on the person in front of you and try to make a positive change for them. So, you know, the, having this, the podcast and, and other platforms similar to that are you're trying to get the, the message out to a broader audience on, on a, the public stage. And that's great. And I think it's good that we do this and I'm motivated to do it. Uh, but ultimately, the more impact that I can have is on the individual level for a single indi- single person at a time. Certainly. And. You know, there are enough wins and there are enough people who who care enough and are grateful for for having someone to help guide them through it. And when you see the changes and you get to sit back down with that person and go like, look at this. This is amazing. Like your insulin is cut in half and you're no longer in the diabetic range and your weight has come down like 10 kilograms. This is this is amazing. So like, you know, what we're doing is working and you will benefit from it. Uh, so there's there's enough of those experiences. You know, once a year I get. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's yeah. good. I guess over time I become less patient with people's own excuses. Even sure. though I completely understand why people struggle, I am empathetic to the reasons why a person struggles. I know that anybody, if they could just snap their fingers and start taking better care of themselves, they would. I know this is a complex thing. If it was but easy, like, but it's like would I don't do have it. time. I don't have time for people anymore who are not at that place. Like, I, it can't be my job to like push you along and put you know 100% effort into getting a 5% return out of you. Like, you come back when you're ready to do what you need to do to the best of your ability. And if you're not there yet, I have no time for you because there's enough people in the world who need help who are ready for it that I can access those people and make an impact there rather than spin my tires with someone who's just looking for the next thing that they're going to do and they're going to do it the exact same way as they did the year before and it's not going to be any different as far as a long-term result. I just have no time or patience for people in that state yeah. anymore i, I get I, it don't I agree be insulted but i can't like i don't have time for you i know anymore. uh i know you're a big fan of tim ferris um <laughs> on and off yeah so there was uh, w- one podcast i listened to this is several years ago now um but he, w- he was talking about like gr- growing his audience and he said he, f- he f- the one of the major hurdles that he had was he was always of the mind that he was he was trying to convert people so he's all about self-improvement and, you know, good performance and everything else. Um, but he was always trying to convert people over to his side and, and way of thinking. Yeah. And once he allowed himself to let that go, it made all the difference because he realized that there are enough people who are ready and willing to buy in. And by focusing on those people, he was able to do a much better job and forget about the haters and all the rest and just focus on doing a good thing for this group of people who are fully supportive of, of the effort. It is such an important lesson. Like, it doesn't matter if it's in business, if it's in your personal life. Yeah. Trying, like, once you're an adult and, you know, who you are at your core is probably closest to who you're going to be for the rest of your life. Like you can't you can't try and bend and shape to accommodate 
other people in their isms. Like you just have to be who you are and attract the audience that is attracted to what you're putting out there. Yeah. And it's a critical error to try and like be everything to everybody and draw everybody in and like right. change people who are not already immediately on board with what you're putting out there. And I don't know what that is about people. Maybe it's, you know, maybe there's some gratification in, you know, the, the, the most difficult to, 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 meet person and you know getting them on board with something and changing their life i would perhaps you know people people want to have that story to tell but i think it's the wrong way to go it's like you create the thing that matters to you and you offer the thing that you know how to offer in your unique way and people are in or they're out and the people who are out, you don't sit there and go, why are all these people out? How can I how can I get this person in? How can I get that person in? No, you need to spend your time scouring for the people who are in <laughs> and making yeah. sure that you properly identify yourself to those people right. who are going to be into what you're trying to do. I mean, difficult for you to do because you're in a publicly funded system where it's your responsibility to take care of people no matter what. It doesn't matter how ready they are for your care. It is your responsibility legally to, to take care of those people. This I is have true. a little bit more freedom where I can be 100% selective in, in, in my audience yeah. and in the people that I work with. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, the, I mean, there's kind of a divide in the inpatient, outpatient world. So, I mean, in the inpatient world, we just, whoever shows up to emerge and, and needs to be admitted to hospital, then, yep, we're there for you. And it doesn't it doesn't matter who you are, where you came from. Like we'll we'll do the best that we can to to look after you. Uh, in the outpatient world, you can tailor your practice for sure, and uh, and let referring physicians know what sort of you know diagnoses and things that you you're trying to niche down into. It's challenging, but yeah. uh, but it can be done. So well, I'm glad you're finding yeah. some amount of. Uh, gratification yeah. in your job. I mean, I'm sure there's good days and bad days. <laughs> I'm yeah. sure there's good moments and, and and tough moments. But at the same time, like these are all just people. They have families. They have grandkids. Like even if all you can do is a drug intervention and it's the only thing they will take on, if, you, if that intervention extends this person's life five to ten years and gives them more time with those people who are, you know, they're perhaps a very important person in someone else's life, regardless of the physical state that they're in, then, I don't know, maybe that's the way that you should look at things. Maybe. <laughs> maybe. So there's two more things for dementia. Oh, there is? <laughs> two more. Jeez, I wish you would have stopped me long ago. Oh, I know. It's, I'll, yeah. I'll go, well, I was going to say, I'll go back and edit this. That's never going to happen. But <laughs> I should. It's fine. It's great. Um, so the two other things, so on the supplement side, so there are really two things to actually consider. So I know we don't push a lot of, a lot of supplements typically, um, but when it comes to, to cognition, so the B vitamins are actually pretty important for neurological function. Uh, so vitamin B12 is something that can be easily checked in routine blood work. Uh, but if, if you're, if you are somebody who has a pretty strong family history of dementia, then actually supplementing B vitamins, so specifically six, nine, and, and twelve, is actually probably a reasonable reasonable thing to do. It's it's low cost, it's low harm, uh, and might actually be beneficial. But again, you can get your at least your B twelve checked um, as an insured service in in Ontario to let you know where your status is, uh, and then you can also look at your diet and make sure that you've got an adequate B twelve, which is mainly coming from meat, animal products. 
Um, so there's there's that aspect of it. And then uh, omega-3 fatty acids would be the other one that's commonly associated uh, with with cognition and, and neurological function. I, I don't often recommend that people take you know, a bunch of, of omega-3 supplement. But again, if everything else is dialed in and that strong genetic association is there, then, I mean, why not? Uh, I just always get concerned that people use supplements to cover up for other things that they're not willing to optimize. Almost 100% yeah. of the time. So I, I, you know, the things that we've already discussed, focus on those, get those <laughs> dialed in and don't say, oh, great, I'm taking, well, my, this is I'm what, taking my B complex now, so I'm good, right? This and is what a certain percentage your, of the audience your just ab- heard. Your abdomen <laughs> is hanging over your belt. and They went, yeah. oh, good. Yeah. I don't have to do any of that other <laughs> exactly. stuff. I could take yeah. B12 and omega-3. Did you... Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so what you have to do is set up a, a walking circuit, and every two kilometers you take a vitamin. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> My apologies. Um, did you, speaking of uh, B vitamins and to a lesser degree omega-3s, did you read a few months back about that? Um, it was one of the larger uh, like vegan meat replacement company CEOs who <laughs> bit a person's nose off. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. And of course, that was the immediate uh, Twitter narrative is like, that's what happens when uh, when you're vegan is you go crazy and you bite people's faces off. He just needed uh, needed meat. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it was poetic justice for all the carnivores out there. Oh, my gosh. That's amazing. Yeah. Okay. Anything else on uh, yeah. Alzheimer's? So the, the last thing is hormone replacement. Yeah. Um, so in both low testosterone and around the time of menopause, uh, so low testosterone for for men, and then menopause for for women. In case this was not obvious. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, so hormone replacement can actually be uh, useful for cognitive changes. Uh, now, for for the testosterone thing, I mean that's it's got to be a properly proven low free testosterone state, which typically has to be. You know, you, we check it in a fasting state in the morning. If it's truly low, you check it again. Uh, and if it's low again, then you can confirm that you've got low T and replacing that might actually improve <laughs> your cognitive performance, uh, among other things. So lean body mass and, uh, and other beneficial physiologic effects. And then for women, so going through menopause, there's often a significant change in, uh, in, you know, not, not only mood and the the vascular effects uh, but also cognition so there's typically that's when sort of women catch up with men and all their vascular risk factors is when they go through menopause so early hormone replacement so average age of menopause is around 50 so using hormone replacement then can actually have beneficial uh, cognitive protecting uh, effects for for about 10 to 15 years so over age 65 the the general advice is we shouldn't be continuing to to provide estrogen replacement, uh, but up until that point, if there are cognitive concerns and and a and a genetic history, then it's certainly reasonable to consider. So you don't agree with James Cameron's recent uh, commentary about how testosterone is a toxin that needs to be removed from the I saw there was something <laughs> about him in uh, like Time magazine or something was I that... can't remember where I read it but yeah he's, uh, he's I you know I, I typically go to James as a source of <laughs> health information uh, <laughs> maybe we disagree on this one I don't yeah, know yeah his yeah. skin tone tells me that he's perhaps not the person for the job 
yeah, I found that quite amusing. Testro- testosterone takes all the blame for just like people, people being shitty. Yeah. <laughs> oh, speaking of testosterone, so this uh, you know in the you know clearly obvious to everyone news. Uh, the liver king finally admitted that he's been taking anabolic steroids all I, this time. Like, what an idiot. Come uh, on. It's just. Yeah. I don't know why anyone cares. <laughs> like, the first when I saw that. Uh, so funny. What's his face for more plates, more dates went on Joe Rogan. And then uh, some other big podcaster had somebody on to talk about liver. And everyone's like. Crapping on the guy of like, how dare he? I'm sitting there thinking, like, number one, who, like, why does anyone care? Number two, who thought this guy was not taking exactly. some form of steroid for a significant yeah. period of time? Like, and what responsibility does he have to like the the youth of the world and like? I don't. It's just so I, funny who, because who he, he denied it for so long. Publicly, of course he did. He's selling stuff, and then he's making <laughs> millions of dollars on this product. And it's like you just nobody looks like this. Yeah. Unless you're taking anabolic steroids. Like, yeah. I don't care how much raw liver you're eating. It's just it's totally totally bananas. But, yeah. Uh, like his whole. I just his, thought it was funny. I haven't looked at that much stuff he he's done, but from what I've seen, it's just like obvious, disgenuine social performative art like yes, it's, it's, it's completely I, i'm sorry if you're getting yeah. sucked into that yeah and eating raw liver thinking it's going to change your life and you're heartbroken and feel betrayed because liver king is taking testosterone sorry you're a moron you have bigger <laughs> things you have bigger things to worry about than what liver king's up to like if that's if that is your path out of the misery of your life right now, you need uh, you need we, uh, to think an alternative. We, we covered it this at, at one point during a journal club, probably. But it's, you know, when you're taking health advice from somebody, consider the source. Yes. You know, is this somebody with credentials? Is this somebody with conflict of interest? Is this somebody who's actually done any science or has any understanding of the basis of of health in general? Uh, yeah, that's. And also, buyer beware. <laughs> if you looked at this guy and he inspired you to eat better and work out and start taking care of yourself, what do you care if he's taking steroids? Yeah. Like, yeah. whatever catalyst gets you to take better care of you, like, there's no, like, okay, there's, but there's, there's no there's a 100% chance <laughs> that there are people actively right now looking for a source of anabolic steroids because they go, well, that was the one thing that I was missing all this time I that he was doing. <laughs> I don't know. I think it's pretty obvious that anabolic steroids can be a path to inhuman physiques in certain <laughs> people with certain work at, work ethic in certain places. I know people who I grew up with when I was younger who took steroids and didn't even work out. And they're like, I'm just going to take steroids and get nice. it. And I'm sure you can imagine how that worked yeah. out. Yeah. Anyhow, yeah. <laughs> anything else? Really tiny testicles. Anything else yeah. you want to you want to mix in on Alzheimer's here? Yeah, that's uh, no. I think we we covered what I wanted to cover. Um, I, oh, I guess actually one thing. So if 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 somebody is concerned about this, you've got that uh, family history, and you're going to your physician to request, you know. You know, maybe I should get some blood work and check this out and see if I can optimize some stuff. So the things are you, you want to you want to make sure that you know your glucose metabolism status. So you need a fasting glucose. I argue people need a fasting serum insulin level as well. And then you know you can <laughs> figure out how to interpret that, or hopefully your physician knows how to interpret that. But it's important information. You need a lipid panel. Get the ApoB to 
to flesh out the lipid panel. Make sure you know what your blood pressure is. You can check the B12 while you're at it. Um, so those, I mean, those would probably be the most high yield things to look at and try to optimize uh, with you know a data driven approach. And then if uh, if people are interested, you know, the, the genetic profiling is is available out there through like the 23andMe sort of thing. But I, you know, you kind of need to be prepared to think about, well, if I know that my status is high risk, what am I going to do with that information? So again, it's another sort of buyer beware, but it can be motivating to be a little more aggressive about prevention if you know that status. Probably not where you need to start though. No, exactly. Podcast out. The content provided on this podcast is for informational purposes only and does not constitute the providing of medical advice and is not intended to be a substitute for independent professional medical judgment, advice, diagnosis, or treatment. I mean, clearly not when I'm speaking. I'm not a doctor, but that goes for the real doctor, Dr. Appleton as well. You should always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with any questions or concerns you may have regarding your health. You should never disregard or delay seeking medical advice relating to treatment or standard of care because of information contained in or transmitted, huh? Transmitted? Yes, information contained in or transmitted in this podcast. <laughs>